Welcome to the Collective Impact Forum podcast, here to share resources to support social change makers working on cross-sector collaboration. The Collective Impact Forum is a nonprofit field-building initiative and online community that is co-hosted in partnership by the nonprofit consulting firm FSG and the Aspen Institute Forum for Community Solutions. In this episode, we're sharing a conversation from the 2021 Collective Impact Action Summit that was held this past spring. During this session, I got the chance to talk with disability justice advocate Amani Barbarin about the various narratives that affect disabled folk in the U.S. and what measures can we take to better support disabled members of our communities. As I also identify as a person with a disability, this is a topic close to my heart. And if you're wondering why a podcast that focuses on supporting cross-sector collaboration is talking about disability, we just want to remind listeners that in the U.S. alone, it's estimated that at least 20% of the population identifies as having a visible or invisible disability. And since all collaboration involves working with people, there's a high chance that your work will affect disabled members of your community. The more we know about the narratives that affect disabled folk, especially about the narratives that are continuing to cause harm, the better we'll be able to serve the wide variety of people in our communities. I am Tracy Timmons Gray. I'm here at the Collective Impact Forum, so the host organization um, is doing the summit. I also, if you're, at, you may know my work from doing the back end of all the plenaries. So if there's anything that goes wrong during the plenaries, maybe that was me. I also identify as a person with a disability. I was born with congenital glaucoma, and I am low vision. So I'm very excited about this talk today. I'm very honored to be in discussion with Amani Barberin. Uh, just for a quick uh, rundown of what's happening today. I'm going to I'll introduce Amani and then provide very brief framing on our discussion around disability and narrative change. Then we have around five questions that we'll be going over in kind of a fireside chat format. So feel free to imagine your preferred fireside setting. So that's kind of the rundown for today. So let's get started. Amani Barberin is a disability rights and inclusion activist and speaker who uses her voice and social media platform to create conversations engaging the disability community. Born with cerebral palsy, Amani often writes and uses her platform to speak from the perspective of a disabled black woman. Amani is from Philadelphia and holds a master's in global communications from the American University of Paris. Her published work includes those in Forbes, Rewire, Healthline, Bitch Media, and more. She runs the blog crutchesandspice.com and a podcast of the same name. She currently serves as the communications director for a nonprofit in Pennsylvania. Thank you so much, Amani, for joining us today. Hello, how are you? So good. <laughs> and for reframing for the discussion around disability change and narrative, uh, the, the topic of disability and narrative change is both very broad and very complex. On top of that, the disability community is also very diverse. There's a wide range of disabilities, both visible and invisible. And you also have many folks who are at the intersection of disability and other formative experiences, including race, sexuality, gender, and class. There is no one disabled experience. Since we only have a short time together, we're going to center the discussion on just a couple topics. And our hope is that this discussion today will help shine a light on areas within disability justice and accessibility and narrative change that you would wanna to take to the next step and deepen your own understanding on. So with that, Amani, 
how did you get into doing disability justice and narrative change work? Um, I remember in about 2014, I was really just, I felt like I was in the wind and at a loss for what to do next. And it was shortly after I graduated college and I really wanted to talk about being disabled and being black because I grew up with very rare instances of representation before me. And so I wanted to write from that perspective. And the more I started writing about my disability, the less my mom wrote about, read it. <laughs> so I had to like collaborate with other disabled people because I wanted somebody to read my work. And so um, kind of in that collaborative spirit, I started interviewing other disabled people and talking about political change and um, systems change and then engaging with different uh, like other advocates um, just to make sure that I could, that I was listening to the community and not just speaking based off of my own individual experiences, but understood how the community operates as a whole. Um, and so from there, I kind of just, <laughs> it's kind of like a rabbit hole. You just kind of go down every single path and you learn new things about your own life based off of the lens of how ableism is structured in society. You know, I had grown up with this idea that, you know, I was taught that, you know, through it, if I tried hard enough, I could do anything and no, don't let anybody's biases stop you, but biases are built into the system. So that would be, be me blaming myself for things that I largely had no control over as a child. So um, kind of unpacking a lot of that early on kind of led me to speaking out about it. And ever since then, people have called me an activist. Well, I know how much I appreciate your work. And for those that uh, haven't followed Amani's work before, uh, please check out her channel on TikTok and Twitter. She's amazing videos. You've done so much work, really great work around narrative change, around shifting the narrative around disability. When you're thinking about the United States, for you, what do you, and this is um, to share out to audience members who may or may not be familiar with these narratives, what do you think are the most dominant narratives around disability in the U.S. right now? I think one of the things that we have failed as a society to understand is nuance. Um, and so we think of disability and ability as a binary. Um, and a lot of more people are disabled than they think they are. And because they see disability as less than or other, they don't under they don't have the willingness to look inward and say, I have issues with A, B, or C, and I need help for them. Rather, we overwork ourselves and we basically gaslight ourselves because we don't want to be labeled as disabled. And with good reason, because disabled people are seen as disposable. Um, we're seen as not giving to the economy, not being productive members of society. And because of that, we, we have a history of tying disability to racial minorities um, through things like eugenics and race science. And so it's all interconnected. It's not one system over the other. And so when we talk about ableism, we're talking about a whole slew of systems that work together to oppress tons of people. Um, and one example I can think of right now is the voting, um, the legislation around voting that is looking to suppress people's access to the vote. That will disproportionately hurt disabled people because disproportionately black and brown people become disabled. So when we think about things through an intersectional lens, we're really addressing the ways in which ableism is weaponized throughout society. Um, and if more people understood the ableism they have towards themselves, the more we're, the more we're likely to change systems as a whole. Because I can't talk to somebody 
about system change and ableism if they are not willing to do the work themselves to some extent. And so I hope as a society, we move away from that binary and understand how we contribute to ableism and how we are manipulated by it as well. Spot on. Through all your work around uh, promoting a, a, shift, a shift in narrative change around disability, what for you, what has been some of the most challenging things or even illuminating things um, during your work? <sighs> yeah, I hear that say. <laughs> Well, I think one of the hardest things is parents and non-disabled people are the hardest to, first of all, I need them out of my way. Um, and, uh, and so a lot of them will butt heads with me because I don't cater anything to them. You know, I what I do is I try to inform them in such a way that uh, the disabled people in their life are safer um, and feel like they're being heard, or at least somebody's telling their family members the truth. But non-disabled people think that disability is all about them because we have, as a society, decided that disabled people can't do anything without non-disabled people. And so if we need their co-sign and their permission to innovate change, but in the reality, it is because of our oppression that they benefit from that we are as creative as we are because we have to work around them. Um, and everything about disability, the non-disabled people have been told is a lie. So they share, they don't have the same reality that we do. Um, and so they want to talk over us because everything about disability that we teach non-disabled people is about making them feel better if they were to become disabled and not really catering to disabled people to save our, save our lives, literally save our lives. And rather, they would have us serve as a litmus test for how much worse their life can be than undo any of the systems that they benefit from. Even though the only thing that separates me from a non-disabled person is luck and time. So every single barrier, every single stereotype that non-disabled people reinforce when they're non-disabled will exist when they're not when they're disabled. It's not like I've said before, it's not a binary. So you cannot think of these things as things that don't affect you. If you could tell me what will happen to you tomorrow, I will tell you ableism does not affect you. But you can't. So work on it now. And non-disabled people will fight me on that all because of the, I use the word disabled. Like that's where their brain shuts down because you're, you're like, that's, that's where you draw the line. I'm not othering myself because of my disability and because I talk about my disability. You're othering me because you cannot talk about my disability. So non-disabled people are usually the biggest hurdle I have when it comes to talking about disability because they wanna police the language I use about it to make themselves feel better. And what does that do? You're right. You're absolutely right. And it, to just to, to build off your point too, it's so, I think you, and you brought this up too in your videos around disability as a, as a marginalized, a group of marginalized folk where that anyone can enter at any moment. Mm -hmm. So it's so interesting how much folks who are abled basically create systems of oppression when that, then that's something that any one step or one moment, they will literally fall into that same place and that same point of oppression. 
Yeah, and the amount of people I come across in my work who were previously non-disabled, who have to do a lot of devastatingly difficult internal work to undo that because now that they, now all those beliefs are now internalized because they are disabled, it's, it's alarming. It's really alarming because pe people are not prepared at all. And they fight so much, the, they fight so much the label of disability that they can't even get what they need because they can't even say the word. Like if you, most agencies will not serve you if you do not disclose a disability to them. If you can't say the word disability, they can't serve you. If you cannot give them a diagnosis, they legally cannot serve you in a lot of cases. So get used to saying the word. And it, I feel like it's such a ridiculous barrier <laughs> to talking with them. It's like, it's a word. You know, you're the ones that made it up. Just say it. Um, so, and I see a lot of parents, you know, really kind of fighting older disabled people about just the word. And we're trying to tell them, no, you need this word because it leads to services, it leads to accommodations, it leads to extra time on tests, it leads to their own internal understanding. And because their child is an extension of themselves, as, as non-disabled people, they don't want disability attached to their extension of themselves, which is their child. And they don't wanna to have to deal with the fact that they have more privilege over their child now because they do not exist in the same realm or same world as disability does. It is harmful. It is harmful. I'm just gonna build off, gonna go off script a little bit. We're gonna build off a little bit. We just uh, shared too. I think, I don't, I think um, parents, of uh, disabled kids, you know, I love my mom, she's amazing. Um, it, this is such a challenging area for folks because, you know, they oftentimes in, in that moment or when their child is born or, or when de develops a disability, they suddenly realize they have to become an advocate and they can then suddenly take an, an, a very strong role in that advocacy, but not understanding too how they, they may take over and take over everything and even take over the whole realm of, of uh, discussion and completely block out other folks with disabilities and adults, especially with disabilities. And um, yeah, it's a it's a very challenging emotional area for folks who always wanna think about the best for their children, but not, don't always think about the harm they might be doing at the same time for, for both their children and for other disabled folk. Yeah, I feel like parents really have to listen to older disabled people because they, they want the best, but, but they're doing it with the worst, you know, because <laughs> your reality of disability is not what your child is experiencing. And no matter how many children or how many family members in your life that are disabled, you're not disabled. Like, you cannot speak for that person, even if they're non-speaking. Everything you do is an approximation of what they need. So you really need to listen to people who have either been there or to your child themselves. Spot on. So we'll get to a, a simple topic, which is COVID. <laughs> uh, really short uh, and simple. Um, so I think for many of us, uh, especially in the disabled community, COVID has maybe put a stark spotlight on things that we already really understood or, or felt and experienced, but now more people 
are experiencing the same uh, thing. But from your perspective and your work, you know, what it, what has COVID really unearthed or revealed for you? That all of the stereotypes about disability, not about this. The stereotypes about disability do not save disabled people. I, growing up, I dealt with a lot of this burden placed on me to be an inspiration, to be a performance for disability, and none of that matters. Because the moment disabled people were out of sight because we had this quarantine and that we could not help with people's clout and that people couldn't help us out of, you know, so their, for their social media, then they were like, well, let them die. That was literally the thought process. And everything that disabled people have been asking for all of a sudden became available. And we were the best, the disability community was the best equipped to transition non-disabled people into remote working and remote advocacy and remote events, disabled people. But disabled people account for about a third of all job losses um, in 2020. We were the first fired and yet we were the ones who were most equipped for this moment in time. And that's really, that really boils down to the fact that we as a society do not trust disabled people to lead. And that comes from this idea of capacity. And no matter what, I, what I'm talking about, I always bring up capacity because non-disabled people have this idea that because a person has a disability, they do not have the capacity to do anything that affects their life. And they don't want disabled people directing their life, um, which is why so much ableism comes up in political campaigns. We'll get, that's another story. But um, when it comes to leading, disabled people are the blueprint for accessibility. We're the blueprint for remote working. All of these services that you're using right now, disabled people begged for, begged. All this captioning, disabled people begged for. We've asked for events to be remote. We've asked for book signings to be remote. We've asked for speaking engagements to be remote. People would not give us the time of day, but the minute non-disabled people needed it, it was available within a heartbeat. So never underestimate a disabled person's capacity to lead or speak for themselves or advocate for you and the society at large. And also, don't, and also do not underestimate a disabled person's capacity for harm too, because that's the way that we gaslight people within the community. So understand what your, view, what your viewpoint is on capacity and unravel it. <clears throat> because we have let, we've let society be led by people who want to do it harm all under the guise of doing it for the greater good when disabled people had the solution the entire time. It's true. And that right now we're starting to get into intention of the the tension as more and more folks get vaccinated, which is also a huge equity issue for disabled folks, by the way, for listeners, um, is this want to return to quote unquote normalcy of before. So all these amazing accessible measures that we have, are enacting are people want to get rid of. They're like, I have Zoom fatigue. And mm -hmm. it's so fascinating to, to have folks not think about well, what does a hybrid world look like that would address so many accessible measures 
that would keep disabled people at the table that now that we know how successful these things can be. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. I mean, I, it's one of those things where you watch people complain about stuff that makes your life easier and you're like, this is like, it gets really frustrating because this, as soon as non-disabled people don't want it, it's not going to be available. And like the, our greatest foe in these after times is going to be public memory and people remembering what it's like to be isolated from your communities, from your friends and family. Disabled people want access to things, even if they're frivolous, even if they're just fun. So the idea that we are gonna shut off access because COVID is quote unquote over, which probably never gonna be, but because COVID is over, um, that's ridiculous to me. It's, and it's also so demeaning um, to disable people to watch people debate whether or not we should be present for things. What gives you the right? <laughs> you know, like disabled people have lived, we've survived, we survived a pandemic, but we can't survive non-disabled people being finicky about our access to things. No. <laughs> That's a great point. And uh, my hope is for, for listeners, and this will lead into the next question too, is if you are um, can't wait to get everyone back in the office and you're, you're kind of setting up a hard line of, no, everyone's got to be back in the office, no more of this remote, maybe th think about that and think about how much a hybrid model or an accessible model might actually make your, allow all of your staff, including your staff with disabilities to, to really flourish. And what does it mean to, to have that kind of more, I don't know what the right word is, compassionate, accessible uh, way of being. Well, also, like, just think about the fact that about, you know, it's estimated that a third of people diagnosed with COVID, whether they were symptomatic or not, will have a disability. So if you plan on rehiring people or hiring different people, that's like you're investing more money in hiring new people than accommodating the people that were with you from the beginning. So and you brought this up a really powerful point in your videos before around COVID, which was not just, you know, to really center, this isn't just a mass death event. You mentioned this is a mass disabling event mm -hmm. and how many folks are entering or have entered the disabled community just this year because of COVID and how, how um, what their life may, is, is and how all these inaccessible measures are affecting them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have, it's not negotiable. Like we keep thinking it's, it's, it's optional. It's not negotiable. You, it has to be done. Like I've, you know, and like I said before, luck and time, the only thing difference between me and you is luck and time. The people who are now disabled because of COVID are the people who may have been reinforcing these barriers beforehand. Likely not, but could have been. So what is the world that they're entering into? What do disability services look like now? Those are questions they're gonna to have to ask themselves because those are the services they need. Uh, to cap off and see if you have time for uh, Q&A is around, uh, folks always uh, are in these chats and they're always like, you know, what can I do? Mm -hmm. So uh, one question to think about and this, and I'm gonna think of this for both, you know, the able community, we're going to the, to the binary, the able community and the disabled community. Cause I know that because the disabled community is so diverse itself, it's easy to address one part of the disabled community and completely muck up another part. Mm -hmm. And so what are the, what are kind of things that you want, what are things you want people to take away from the session and thinking about the narrative and disability for, you know, for all these different audiences? Well, for non-disabled people, I really hope that you evaluate your own internalized ableism because 
your body is not a constant. It fluctuates and disability may touch your life at any point. So understand that and also undo this notion of capacity and who's able to lead, um, who's able to contribute, who's able to harm. Disabled people are people. Um, we come with our own personalities. So time, believing somebody is one way just because they have a disability does not make any sense. Um, for disabled people, I would hope that you find comfort in the disability community because that there is no stronger coalition of people I've ever met than disabled people. There's no more innovative group of people than I've, that I've met than disabled people because our innovation, our creativity, our community is how we survive. And so I really hope that you reach out to other disabled people. I really hope that you engage in conversations with other disabled people because once I found the disability community and once I was able to talk to others, things were kind of jettisoned into perspective for me. And I could kind of see that I wasn't alone and I wasn't making stuff up and I wasn't, you know, losing it in my own head because I couldn't figure out why I was experiencing why, what I was experiencing. Um, and, you know, and understand that we are not a monolith either and we listen to each other. We have to. If we're going to do the best we can by each other, we have to listen to each other. That's very powerful. Um, so we have about it's a time for one or two questions. And so uh, do folks want to raise your hand and uh, we can invite you to come up mute and share your question. Oh, I do have one comment that I saw that Alicia wrote about how she doesn't disclose her disability and that makes sense for black women. Um, it like, And I'm very careful to say whenever I'm in a room full of people that specifically for black people, specifically black women, there is no, there, I never force a black woman to disclose a disability if they don't want to. It's a further marginalization that quite literally is life or death in a lot of ways, um, can disconnect them from their community, can disconnect black women from uh, society in a lot of ways. So I always try to be careful when talking with black women about disability because I want them to know that claiming disability is about claiming community and making sure that you have the resources you need, but also there's a stigma that goes along with it that cannot be detangled from being a black woman with a disability. Um, so that's, so I agree with um, Alicia and it makes complete sense to me. Great point. Uh, someone. Yeah, I think I, the host asked me to unmute, so I think that's my call to jump in. Um, first of all, Amani, I am just floored and inspired, and you're beautiful, and thank you, thank you for your messages here today. But, um, I, you know, this question of intersectionality is one that um, I'm, I'm really trying to understand how I can be a voice um, for uh, in, in our initiative, in my work. Um, without, as a white woman, without furthering the racist stereotype of, you know, people of color being less able. And so, you know, at times when I've tried to advocate for, um, you know, disability pieces, I, I'm getting a lot of pushback from ableist people of color who are, who are not wanting to have that conversation or not wanting to consider um, disability uh, at all because they feel like it, it furthers that stereotype. So any thoughts on how we can have these conversations in our collective impact work? Thank yeah. you. Yeah, um, this is a really 
timely question because as we talk about vaccines, we talk a lot about vaccine hesitancy among communities of color. And the very first thing you have to do is learn your history. Because if you're coming at people of color without context for why they feel the way they feel, you'll be butting heads with them the entire time. And there are reasons why black and brown people react to disability the way that they do. Um, in the early, I wanna say 1900s, 18, some century long ago where they had buttons. But, um, <laughs> you know, there was actually a science called race science in which they tried to diagnose otherness as a disability by tying race to disability. And so if you don't know that history, you, you, you're not equipped to talk to them, first of all. Second of all, what I always tell allies or white people is that you don't have to be the center of a space to create space. And a lot of times when, we, when allies try to facilitate things, it's about making themselves front and center. And so giving that, that ability to somebody who's willing to talk about disability in that group, making sure that they have the tools that they need to talk to other people is probably the best way to go about it. Because they're not gonna talk to you. you know? <laughs> because you, you are, you're an embodiment of why they don't wanna talk about disability. Because they're afraid, and I don't know if you're in HR or whatever, but they're afraid of being seen as less than by you and losing the resources that they need to survive or being stigmatized and then losing the resources they need to survive. So understand the history, make space, and then back away from it and facilitate as needed so that people have the resources they need to continue the conversation. Someone, uh, so we are actually at time and someone just asked a very challenging question that I know will not be <laughs> answered really quickly. Um, so I apologize for that, but I do wanna ask one question, last question for Amani is, is how can people uh, follow more of your work? What are, where, where can they find you? I'm literally everywhere. Um, <laughs> I'm on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram. Um, my website is crutchesandspice.com. My name is Amani Barberin, so you can look me up uh, and I, I should pop up. I look good in the photo too, I'm like, like this. Yeah, um, you do. But <laughs> you can find me literally anywhere. Um, and I do a lot of writing and have been publishing and stuff here and there over the last year, but it's been really difficult with COVID. Um, but yeah, you can follow my work. Um, my email is amani.barbara at gmail.com. So I'm pretty sure that you'll be able to catch me literally anywhere. And it's okay if you mention your future project that you talked about earlier? Yes, I'm writing a book. Um, it's called, If I Were You, I Would Kill Myself and Other Disabled Compliments. Because, you know, I have to, I have to be sarcastic about it. Um, otherwise, I feel like, you know, I feel like I just, I just like making them uncomfortable. <laughs> and for listeners, those are actually something that people, disabled people actually really do hear. People actually oh. do say that. We're like, you work, it's so nice you're outside, as opposed to what? <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, well, I can't wait to read your book and also listen to it. And uh, I'm just so appreciative of your amazing work, your um, uh, fantastic videos. Everyone, please go check Amani out on Twitter and TikTok. It's, her work is amazing and, and really can sh shift the narrative. So Amani, thank you so much. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. Bach Tower and Christian, who've been working on the back end, thank you so much. And uh, we will see you next time. Thank you. Have a good one. 
And this closes out this episode of the Collective Impact Forum podcast. If you're interested in learning more about what was discussed, you can find links to resources in the footnotes for this episode. We would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced and edited on the unceded traditional lands of the Coast Salish people, including the Duwamish, Suquamish, Stoquamish, and Muckleshoot tribes. We honor with gratitude the land itself and the past, present, and futures of these tribes. The intro music for this episode is composed by Raphael Crooks, and our outro music is composed by Kevin McLeod. Our big news this month is that we just opened registration for our upcoming Champions for Change 2021 online workshop. Champions for Change is designed specifically for those in the early stages of their collective impact work. This year's online workshop will be held over three weeks from September 21st through October 5th, 2021, and will feature a mix of weekly online sessions and virtual office hours with faculty. And the big plus for online workshops is that all the sessions are recorded, so you won't have to worry about missing a session. You'll have access to them all. Check out more about Champions and register for this year's workshop at collectiveimpactforum.org. And if you're interested, we recommend registering before the early bird rate ends this August. This is Tracy Timmons-Gray, Associate Director here at the Collective Impact Forum and your podcast host. I want to say thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to connecting with you more in the next episode. Until next time, we hope you are safe and well.